Welcome to Building Leaders, everyone, the show about the creative geniuses that are building our world. My name is Angelus Nicolau. I'm the director at Sector and your host. Today's guest is Mr. Hilal Azadi, technical director of WSP in the Middle East. Hilal is a man of immense experience and just as much passion to go with it. He is undismayed by sacrifices and hard work, and through his words of wisdom and, of course, achievements, gives us a pretty good idea of how it's ultimately all worth it. It was one of our favorite podcasts to record, and we hope you enjoy it. If you can, please start by introducing your name and your position and the company that you're working at. Thank you, Angelus and Michaelis. I appreciate your invitation. Uh, my name is Hilal Saadi, and I work at uh, WSP in the Middle East. I am in uh, stationed in Saudi Arabia on one of their big projects. I'll talk about it a little bit later. I'm a technical director in the company, and my specialty is program management and program controls, project controls, planning, scheduling, costing, these things. At the moment, I'm enjoying a good deal of challenges now. I've never experienced, like the world, a hard day job compounded by a corona pandemic, a virus pandemic. So there are lessons to benefit from. One of it is now we're talking by remote communication, video conferencing. I'm doing this all day long now. It's been like three and a half months. I've been at home communicating with my team who is in different places. Some of the guys are at work on office. Some are at home. And the advent of computers and communication technology seems to be a key factor in lessening the impact on business and life. And this is something we need to maximize even when the pandemic is over. There are a lot of uh, procedures, methods, uh, way of thinking, way of doing business that will definitely will change. I don't want to repeat a cliche, you know, before Corona is not like after Corona. Actually, it's like a new birth. And what you as young men are watching now is something that doesn't happen in two or three lifetimes. Mm. You know, right. except for big catastrophes, like my father maybe was a youngster when World War II happened. Right. Okay, that's a big catastrophe. And uh, compared to now, with all the evolutions and changes in society, this is a unique time we're living. And um, in terms of forecast and predictability, there will be other waves of challenges for your generation and in normal life expectancy in the next 50 years. Yeah, it was pretty shocking what happened. <laughs> yes, uh, nobody expected it to be that widespread and that deep. You know, I have friends, families, friends of my family or friends of mine who were in a country on a business trip when this stop of travel happened his wife was somewhere else, his kids are somewhere else, and he could, nobody could go to the other. Nobody imagined, even during the war times, such things to happen. Yeah. So anyhow, it's, uh, it's a major shift. Uh, talking about shifts, it's a, also a business and personal paradigm shift, if you look at it. Yeah. And Mr. Uh, Hilal, where are yes. you from? 
I'm originally Palestinian, but never been to Palestine. I was born in Lebanon, mm-hmm. grew up partially in Lebanon. And then at a young age, I came to Saudi Arabia where my father was working in construction contracting. Uh, although he wasn't an engineer, but that's what where he was working. Uh, I came at age 13. It was like second uh, junior high school, second year junior high school. So I finished high school in Saudi Arabia, six mm-hmm. years. And then I went to the USA to study my bachelor in civil engineering. Since we started where I come from, when I grew up, it's interesting to add. I spent the uh, first period on an English course for non-English speaking. I was good in English because I grew up in Lebanon with good education as a youngster. I went to a uh, specialized academy in the U.S., they have nine levels. They tested me, and they placed me in the seventh level after high school, while many of my colleagues tested in the fourth level. I'm not talking about something I am super, no, but this is my luck, and I grew up where they did not. I learned English, and this is important, the education track. As far back as I remember in my life, my youngest days, I don't remember young days at home. I remember I was in school since mm-hmm. kindergarten. I asked my parents, they said, yeah, maybe I was three years old when I went to the first kindergarten. So I opened my eyes, my early memories, all of it are in school. They used to teach us English and French, but I did not pick up French, I picked up English. Mm-hmm. And uh, to make a long story short, after three months in the academy, I finished my nine levels and ready to go to university. So I chose uh, North Carolina State, and there was a good fortune story from a friend of my father who helped me choose that university. Uh, I'll come back to that later. I finished my bachelor degree in 1984, but at that time, the world was not in better economy than now. There was a shortage of jobs. And I found, because of my experience as a youngster on construction jobs, there were so many things I wanted to know, I wanted to see. As a civil engineer, I've seen bridges being built with pre-stress, you know, post-tension, and I've seen huge construction work, but I did not study that yet in college. An opportunity came, one of the professors was... uh, specialized in material engineering, construction material. He had a project, and he said, hey, Lal, why do you want to go now and sit home waiting for a job? Why don't you just make this master's research with me? So by the time you finish your master's, hopefully the economy will be different, which was an idea that I welcomed, my father welcomed immediately, and without any delay, I I was accepted in the master's program. So I continued. And that was a turning point in my life because I feel I became mature in understanding the basic sciences needed from a research and development point of view. The research I did involved sampling road conditions and making mathematical models. So I did programming. I learned programming as a civil engineer who usually shy away from programming computer science. That turned out to be my best tool, my best ally. That was my form of artistic expression. 
when I program mm -hmm. things, I feel good. I, I do a great job. I deliver a result. So on my master thesis, it was programming a maintenance program for the North Carolina uh, Department of Transportation to assess roads without destructive testing. I was using non-destructive tools, and then we made correlation models. And to make a long story short, we had to be heavy with statistical research. So my major was civil engineering. My minor was in statistics, multivariate analysis, regression analysis, all kinds of advanced statistical models. And that helped me. So in your master's was really the first time where you really started to see, to study and understand what you went to get your degree in. So you went to study civil engineering because you wanted to build the world. And by the time you were done with your degree, uh, the bachelor's at least, you still hadn't felt that you've gotten that practical yeah, I was hungry into the, the construction world. Correct. I was hungry, mm. really. And uh, I'm, I'm still hungry today, by the way. <laughs> and every day I feel, and many others maybe share the same feeling, if I'm not learning something new, I'm going backward because the world doesn't stop. If I stop, that's my mistake, not the world. Nobody can right. catch up with everything. Have you been back to the U.S. since the 80s when you got your degree? Yes, I've been there so many times. Latest was in 2006. Unfortunately, there was a uh, sad story. My brother passed away at that time, and I haven't been going there yet. But I used to go to the U.S. Yeah, thank you. I used to go to the U.S. like two times a year, three times a year, mm -hmm. up to 2006. But uh, lately, I have not. But still, I yearn to go back to my neighborhood that I grew up in as a young man. I have still friends there in the same town in Raleigh, North Carolina. It's really lovely. How has it changed now than it was back then? You know, when you very because I imagine when you went there, it was like a new world for you, right? You grew up in Lebanon, then you went to Saudi. I mean, that's pretty close to Lebanon, around the area, presumably. So first time in the US, did you go there for the first time to study English and then get your degree? Was that the very first time you went there? Actually, you're right. When uh, Lebanon, by the way, in the 60s and the 70s was quite different than Saudi Arabia. No bias intended here, but it is absolutely the case. In Saudi Arabia, I was in a small town, not even in the city at that time. Because of my father's work, we were away from the major cities of Jeddah or Riyadh. We were in a place called Taif. Taif is a still today a small town. You know, it's a city, but a relatively small town. So going out from Taif all the way to the USA, we used to see the American movies or TV series only. Six million dollar man at that time, if you see that <laughs> in the 70s, and a few other American uh, things, a lot of cowboy movies, and that's it, the West. But to be there actually on a personal ground, maybe for first after three months, four months being there, uh, you feel like you are distant from everything you know, disconnected at that time. There was no telephone, no GSM. There was no email, no internet. 
nothing to connect you to your family like you and I are talking now as if we are next door to each other. One minute of telephone call from the U.S. to Saudi Arabia where my parents were was $3.68. Wow. Wow today. Imagine back wow then. Wow today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It cost a fortune to call. If I write a letter to my father, send it by mail, it takes like two weeks to get to him. Right. If he answers me and send it back, it will be like two weeks to send me back his yeah. opinion if I'm consulting him on something. A yeah. different world. Different. Right now. And for those who don't know, um, yes. I grew up in Saudi Arabia myself as well. Uh-huh. I went there when I was just three weeks old and I, and I left from Saudi at 15. But uh, Taif is, is the mountain, right? The mountainous area. Yes, oh. correct. And, and for those who don't know, there, it snows there. So it's in the middle of the desert. Yeah. There, there is snow yeah. in Saudi. And there's quite a few monkeys around, around those monkeys. Not a few. <laughs> Tribes of monkeys, yes. <laughs> Tribes you of will monkeys. find the monkeys all the time. Yeah, you're right. Actually, it's lovely. It's a cold weather like Lebanon. It's high. It rains even in the summer. It's beautiful. Uh, I love Taif. I spent three years there and three years in Abha, basically. And uh, I, I'm right now talking to you from Mecca, not that far from Taif. Oh, wow. At the moment. Oh, great. Yeah, I hope the pandemic opens up so I can go up again to Taif. I go there. My high school still there, still standing. Same name, same location. Yeah. <laughs> I'm assuming Mecca is quite different now than it would be at this time of the year in any other year. Is it special to be living there in such a holy city while there's very few people around? Is it? Does it feel different? Uh, you are pretty accurate. Uh, this time of the year is when usually pilgrims start mobilizing, coming to Mecca. And, uh, of course, this year nobody's coming. Mecca at the moment is under 24-hour curfew, except for a few hours that people can go out to get their shopping or pharmacy or something. Actually, I live in Mecca because my project was in Mecca. Mm -hmm. Then uh, I moved to Jeddah as work, but didn't have time to move my house from Mecca to Jeddah. And when oh. this pandemic came, I ended up sitting at home in Mecca. Oh. <laughs> but yeah, before before the pandemic, I was going to Jeddah every day. It's about 80 kilos drive. And yeah. uh, I used to drive in the morning about an hour, come back in the evening about another hour. It's It becomes normal. But now to work from home, we save the travel time. And probably uh, we are more productive. We are mixing from one subject to another. Mecca is uh, beautiful, quiet, without the influx of pilgrims. It's a nice, calm town, nothing much. It's not uh, a tourist city year-round like Jeddah or some other places now. But uh, hopefully things will be lifted soon and improve. And we'll start resuming our normal life. Pilgrims can continue to resume their worships, you know. Yeah. This is nice. So let's go back a little bit to, um, let's continue where we left off with your degree. So you finish your master's from North Carolina. And then what do you do? You go back to Saudi straight straight away? Yes. At that time, I was like eight years abroad, 
and I miss my family a lot. I didn't go every summer to Saudi Arabia because I used to take summer courses or training. So uh, I used to go every two years to Saudi. So after eight years, um, my father actually, God bless his soul, wanted me to continue PhD. I wanted to, but it just didn't feel right. Uh, I said, I'll come back to it, which is still a promise I haven't fulfilled. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I will do it soon. Actually, don't laugh too much. I have another joke about this one. When my kids grew up and uh, when they were finishing high school, I said, okay, great. Now I can continue my PhD. So I'll go to a place where you will go undergraduate. I'll go for my graduate program. And we studied together. They, of course, did not like that. <laughs> but it, if I had the choice, I would have done it. But hopefully, now that they are graduating, maybe I can go enjoy college life again uh, at a more uh, relaxed pace. Yeah. I don't have to run for everything. Uh, I enjoy learning. I enjoy teaching. I do training a lot. And this is something that I find natural to me. I like it. Or you can do it online now. And, and that's ah, yes. <laughs> I love to. Actually, uh, I don't know how natural tendencies happen. Ever yeah. since I was a kid, I the first tutoring I did, because I knew English better than my colleagues as a youngster in Saudi Arabia, my classmates, because I was good in English, I became their automatic tutor. Mm -hmm. At 13, 14 years old, I started tutoring my classmates. You know, anybody who has difficulty, I was his immediate free tutor. Mm -hmm. We were friends, you know. And then later on uh, with mathematics, these are the two things that I tutor in, math, physics, and uh, the English language. And to me, that was normal because, you know, uh, you have something you can give to somebody else relatively speaking, doesn't cost me much except for my little time, you know, why not give it? Yeah. Education or knowledge shall not be kept away. I really like this path of knowledge sharing and, and we see uh, quite a bit here and it's great to hear you're really passionate about it. We spoke earlier about how decorated your, your background is. Do you think that's one of the contributing factors to what helped you in your career? Uh, the fact that you shared knowledge, not just learned it. You're right. Let me maybe put some light on my career. I'm really, and those who know me, they know that I love what I'm doing. It's not something accidental. Because I grew up in the construction industry when I was a kid, I wanted to become a project manager. I didn't know much at that time. Why am I a civil engineer? Because at that time, it was a roads project. The project manager who used, you know, we were all small families in a small town, uh, knowing each other, visiting each other. The project manager at that time, engineer Nizar was his name, Nizar Abidi. I happened to meet his son 40 years later. <laughs> but anyhow, he was a good man, good engineer, good neighbor, good friend of my father. And we liked him a lot. And he kind of influenced me to get into civil engineering. I asked my father, why engineer Nizar is the project manager? He said, because he is a civil engineer. 
So that's how it got in my head. I didn't know the difference. There were mechanical, electrical, no disrespect, of course. And I just wanted to be a project manager. So from age 13, that's what I set my mind to do. I was comfortable with math and science and didn't have any difficulty in high school. Uh, so I didn't even bother looking for what to study in university. Right. When I went to college, the big help I got from my mentor, his name is Dr. Fouad Rihani, God bless him and his family. He said, I know where your passion is. It is in North Carolina State University because he had his PhD there and he used to teach there. He's a friend of my father. And he said they have a construction option. In civil engineering disciplines, you know, there is the geotechnical, the structural, right. and uh, marine or offshore, and uh, road transportation. This university, when I went there in 1980, has been running a program for 50 years called Construction Option. They teach you about project management, construction techniques, production, maximization, improvements, uh, efficient ways of doing construction. And that's what I really yearned to do. So that was a big boost. Getting a good advice at a young age, never troubled with choosing the school or the discipline to study. Wow. You're lucky. You're lucky because, yeah, I was. you know, a lot of the times, it, you know, it's difficult when you're 17 to make a decision of what you're going to do for the rest Actually 13, of your life. Actually 13. Wow. I was 13. Yeah. It's incredible that you knew so early on and that, you, you know, you stuck with it too. Yes. Uh, it's passion. It's my passion. You know, later we connect to training, you know, when you're a civil engineer building civil elements, living elements, that's basically bricks and stone. But what about building people? That got into my thinking early on that we need the right people to continue this development. Societies grow, their needs grow, their mode of need, their pressure, uh, frequency, quality, they keep changing and growing. Right now, actually, about 20 years ago when I started this thinking, that I am now at my prime professional production age. Okay, in 20, 30 years, if I live that long, I'm going to be maybe not as active in this industry. Who's going to take over? The new generation. Those who come after us will continue what we leave for them, what we teach them. If they screw up later on when we are old and cannot fix anything, it's our mistake. We did not prepare them to the challenges of today or, and tomorrow. If they want to take care of me when, I'm, when I am old, I better take care of them when they are young. This is where it comes to me that you build the right person like planting the good seed and you let it grow. Yeah. And it will give you good fruits at the end. You're pretty active on social media. You're pretty active. Uh, we see you're pretty comfortable with technology. Uh, we can just see how you're moving your hands around in your headset and everything. Uh, you know, it's funny how you can tell when someone is not um, 
comfortable with technology, but you're there. And hearing you talking in such a progressive manner, I'm wondering, what do you think triggered that? What do you think was that trigger in your career or in your life or maybe back in academia that prompted you to start thinking like that? Is it the books you read? Is it your study, your experiences? Angelo, I thank you for your observant questions. This is a story I don't mention much, but now you reminded me of it. It's the upbringing, your home environment. My father and mother, God bless their souls, were adamant readers, especially they raised us in an age of no easy access to knowledge and communication. When we were kids, our house was full of eight kids and maybe 800 books. We are eight kids, four boys, four girls. Reading was the pastime of choice, if not the only pastime, because uh, we appreciate learning. We in our household appreciate learning. We are eight boys and girls. All of us went through, graduated through college. My sister finished her PhD. After giving birth and raising three kids, she finished it two months ago, PhD in psychology. My late brother finished his master's in economy. I finished master's in uh, civil engineering. My other brothers and sisters finished their bachelor's degree. All of them, you know, uh, going to education was a no argument. For me personally, and this left the biggest trigger in me, one day we had a visitor when we were still in Abha. I remember his name is Anwar. He was a family friend. I was a kid. My mother tells me that he's a good man. He has 3,000 books in his house. <laughs> That's what he was valued at. Not he has two cars, a million dollars in the bank. He had 3,000 books. Maybe you never heard this story from anyone. <laughs> That's incredible. It was a trigger to me. It looks like... I shall not leave a book unread. To make a light joke of it, some of my friends, they question why I download a lot of things that is available on the media and the, on the net. I have a hunger for books. They said, I am sure if the internet someday goes out of business, if they lose a file, they'll find it with you. <laughs> <laughs> that was a true statement. The person who said it's still alive, his name is Yahya. He's, uh, you know, a good colleague. And I said to him, well, yeah, why not? I better have, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not guaranteed internet always. I have hundreds or thousands of documents on my computer and my hard disk. Whenever I need to read, I have something to do. So, so your father, who you said was not a civil engineer, who left, yes, his, who left his home country and then left the country where his kids were growing up in, and went to Saudi Arabia, managed to care for and educate himself with, uh, you know, with his wife and, and his knowledge, yeah. and then managed to send his kids to college and have eight kids with bachelor degrees out in the world. Yes, that's wow. true. That's very nice. That's incredibly inspiring. Um, I can you. definitely see. I can definitely see uh, where the passion is coming from. Uh, is there a book that uh, comes to mind that I'm sure there's many, right? But is there one that comes to mind that maybe you refer back to when you want some inspiration 
when things might be getting a little bit tough or you know when you want to achieve something big in your life that you go back to uh, that book to yeah. return that's a very insightful question actually i kind of have a couple of books for every occasion or mood i'll begin with current concerns my career project management one of the books that came out i think it was in 1989 the title is quite catchy and i believe everyone should read it the book title is project management as if people mattered it was focused on the people in the project management not just the documents and the processes and the procedure and that book i read it early 90s uh, was uh, an eye opener because if we want to go back on education you study engineering pretty much physics and science and rules but what about management we don't study management in college and end up being managers many engineers are company managers section heads or people managers without the proper academic or theoretical foundation and they end up making all kinds of mistakes they hurt people and they hurt themselves if they don't learn and pick up the knowledge of management management is a science as important dealing with people as any science computer programming medicine law psychology it's about people finding the keys to people using the right keys to the people not everyone is driven by your type of or priority not everyone is pleased with with your passion there are many things that are people oriented that constitute 80 90% of our daily lifetime when you are at work you're dealing with people to get things done if you don't know how to communicate properly intelligently the word emotional intelligence did not come from vain you know you just can't say to somebody oh i'm sorry for your loss ah, your father died wow yeah it's funny <laughs> you just can't do that yeah. unfortunately some people are almost like this they just yeah. can't connect the word with the expression with the feeling other than this management has rules has concerns financial management money you are an engineer who is at least where i studied who's sworn to a creed the engineer's creed just like the hippocratic oath by doctors right i still remember as a professional engineer in the us the first line or the second line i think says as an engineer you are entrusted with people's lives and money mm-hmm. you just can't do something that hurt people or cost them to lose their money the engineer's creed is a good eye opener for the youngsters to understand they have a responsibility just like a doctor he just can't abuse his knowledge of medical techniques or chemistry of the medicines to hurt someone we noticed your posts about emotional intelligence on linkedin as well and we've been enjoying yeah. them to uh-huh. be honest but 
I want to go back here a little bit because you said this book yes. was from 1989. And yeah. I grew up in Saudi Arabia. I came to Saudi Arabia in 1988. And uh, you know, although I was, I was you know, too young to remember at the time, obviously, but I, I was in Saudi during that crazy growth phase, right? From the 90s uh, until the yes, 2000s. Yes. And yes. I remember these construction projects where engineers and project managers would work 12 and 15 and 16 and 18 hours a day and work Saturdays and Sundays or yes. Thursdays and Fridays and have thousands of people, thousands of expats come in and every month and everything was just so fast paced. And, you know, you're there thinking about people and emotional intelligence and project management as if people mattered. Did you feel comfortable preaching something like that or... Did you preach yeah. that or yes. did people you're right. think you're crazy? What was going on there? Uh, I feel like I know you 100 years ago. Uh, Angelo, you are on step. i give you an example of this. I preach and practice what I preach when it comes to this. Right now, I'm working from office. But my first years, by the way, I finished in 87 with my master's connecting on earlier question, what did I do after graduation? I came back to Saudi, started working immediately on site, not in a fancy office. And I love site work. To me, the dust, the smell of diesel, the noise of the trucks and the construction equipment is music. Yeah. <laughs> you know, to me, it's good. Yeah. I love it. Concrete yeah. to me is my passion. I specialize in concrete, the mixed design and tailoring high strength concrete you know uh, my wife sometimes when i stop by a huge concrete structure like bridges i look at it she says what looks like you, your <laughs> eyes look like you're looking at miss universe <laughs> <laughs> i said yeah concrete is beautiful i love yeah. concrete yeah so come back to answering your question when i was on site you know, you have like two, 3,000 people on site, laborers, engineers, foremen. I was in one project without a foreman. I was the engineer with masters and chief gang, uh, gang leaders and the yeah. labor force, skilled and unskilled. The gangman, yeah. Yeah, gangman. I used to send somebody to the store to bring some tools or supplies for the area we are working in. I sent like two laborers with a wheelbarrow to bring something. Two hours later, they're not back. Why? They are in queue and somebody else come and cut the line. So I, when, I, when they told me why they were late, I started going down from where I was working on a big high building, go down, walk with them to the store, stand by and watch the line. Of course, I pulled my weight as an engineer, you know, my labor waited for the guy before him, and then they got their stuff. So I started telling them, listen, this is not fair. You just right. can't play favorites, you know. I mean, that was on-site implemented. Later on at work, any employee, any colleague who has a problem, even if it's not in my area, if I have to go and talk to management to explain the situation that it is not fair to him or uh, it is not uh, perceived the right way, I mean, I feel I owe that. It's not like I'm doing it for a particular need other than to be for this person to avoid injustice. 
Mm-hmm. And let me tell you on a personal note, I'm a Palestinian who is still living an injustice. I was born in it. Yeah. I have a natural reaction against injustice. Anybody who is getting injustly treated in the world, I associate, I sympathize and empathize immediately with them because I feel it in me. And my kids, too. <laughs> They're the same way, by the way. They keep bringing in the cases. Uh, Dad, a help case. Okay, let's do it. <laughs> you know, it, it's so interesting. There's quite a few expat communities in Saudi Arabia that went there for for work. And Cyprus is a place that experiences injustice. No matter which side you're on, you feel unjust right now. Nicosia, the city where we live, is the last divided capital in Europe. And there's something about that that I see in you as well, which is that passion and that drive to become successful, to to keep working hard, to keep going the, the extra mile. And do you think that this injustice that we have in the back of our minds is what is also pushing us toward that? Okay. We are talking not just business, professional, industry, engineering. Now we're talking personal. Yeah. As a Palestinian who is born in exile, my grandfather's house, land, belongings, assets are gone. What do we have left? This. Whatever we have here. That's why Palestinians... They, their fortune is their education. That's why education in the Palestinian community is widespread. The so-called illiterate, you will find them continuing their unofficial learning because without learning, they know they have no value. We grew up knowing that all the immovable assets are subject to loss or theft. your brain is your most valuable asset. If you lose your brain, anyway, you don't need to live. It's done. It's gone. So the most important thing in a person is what he has between his two ears. This reminded me of an interview I was watching with Bill Gates, and they asked him, what is the thing you're most fearful for in life? And he said, I don't want my brain to stop working. 100% agree. Uh, and we saw something on your LinkedIn, which is that you established a company yourself while in Saudi Arabia. Obviously, we are a startup right now. We love hearing these stories. How was that experience for you? And it's not typical to be in Saudi Arabia, to be an expat, to be working for these big companies. And, you know, let's be honest. I mean, you, you have some pretty great degrees, and by that point, you had a pretty good background with significant experience. Presumably, those big companies take good care of you, but you still went out and did something on your own. What was the uh, thinking behind that? Uh, Angelo, you're going to make this interview three hours, maybe. I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, really. No, no, because you're asking exact good questions, and you have done your homework, and I appreciate that. Look, at age 33, I could have retired happy doing the same thing every day. But I didn't do that. I can't do that. Why? 
because I can't live today, same as tomorrow, same as yesterday. When work routine becomes so stifling, I know I can do more. I know I want to do more. And I know there is more to do. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, but I was in comfortable position at age 33. I could have rested in a job. Exactly. It was 1993 when I started venturing out of my comfort zone. It was good zone, but it was too early. I'm only 33. So I found another opportunity when I moved to Jeddah. I was in Medina at that time. Then after that, it was a good experience also in industrial and power projects. That was an addition to me. A year later, a friend of the family uh, who's also an engineer happened to deal with a company at that time named Saudi Projects. They are still alive, called Projects. Now they are part of Aegis. He said, Hilal, I know your passion for program management. We just met with somebody, a company, new company in Saudi. They're called Projects. And that's what they do. They do what you are passionate about. I had no idea at that time. It was 1993. So I contacted that company. And it was funny. I went for one hour interview. Four hours later, I was accepted. I was given a better offer than I was getting and told to come to Riyadh. I was in Jeddah. Now, to us, growing up in the western region of Saudi, Jeddah, Taif, is normal territory for us. But Riyadh was in the middle of nowhere to us. You know, so I tell my wife, I have good news, I have bad news. She says, (laughs) what, did you have an accident? I said, no, 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 I have a new job offer. She said, okay, is this the good or the bad news? I said, that's the good news. Then what's the bad news? I said, it's going to be in Riyadh. She looked at me simply and she said, that's not on the moon. Riyadh, Riyadh, so so what? You know, I thought it's like, you know, moving away. I don't know how it happened in my psyche at the time, but she made the decision easy for me, you know, move. Because all of my younger years and her family is in Western region. To move to Riyadh is different uh, totally to us. Uh, And Riyadh was beautiful. I loved it. I stayed 24 years in Riyadh. And if wow. it wasn't for family reasons, I wouldn't have left Riyadh. Yeah. Saudi Arabia has been very beautiful, very generous to us. Very, It's a home away from home, you know? And yeah. uh, wherever you are in Saudi Arabia, you are feeling at home. The people, the uh, surrounding, the environment, everything is hosting you, you know? You know you are temporary, but nobody's pushing you in a day yeah. or two to leave. You know, I had a gap between 2002, I think, until 2014. So it was like 12 years that I hadn't been to Saudi. And when I got my degree, I got a job, a dream job of mine to work as a client representative for a family office that was based in Saudi Arabia. And I got on a plane in 2014 and for the first time in 12 years, I went back. And I swear to God, when the door opened, it was in Jeddah. When the door opened and I got the heat and the humidity, yeah. 
And it's a feeling that some people might say, oh my God, did I just walk into an oven? For me, it was, oh my oh. gosh, I just came home. <laughs> you know, it's, I know the feeling. <laughs> it's, it's I incredible. know the feeling. It's the nostalgia. And again, going back to your comfortable memory. As a child, you have lived in places that pleased you or did not. So if you go back to them anytime when you are even 100 years old, that's the same eight-year-old or 12-year-old child in you getting comfortable. It reminded me of something happened to me about a year and a half ago. I came from Riyadh to work in Mecca in a project. It was the mass transport and the metro for Mecca. Now, a little bit later, the negotiation for renewal of the contract the contract was ending, it was five-year contract, so I came at the end of the contract. So when the contract was not renewed, my company decided to move me to their operation in Jeddah. The office where our team is in happens to be in the old part of Jeddah. If you know the old airport before the current yeah. King Abdulaziz airport, they were in Al-Kandara area, it's called. Now, one day I was in this new office. I don't usually go out for lunch. I um, don't want to get heavy. I don't have time to waste. And uh, on one day, I just wanted to go out and find some restaurant nearby to have a bite. I walked around, I mean, I drove behind us as the road, it was one way traffic, one way street, so I couldn't choose different direction. Suddenly, the memories started coming to me. I found myself in front of the building where I was living in 1966. I was six years old. Oh, wow. Building still there. And there is a bakery, a supermarket combination under that. It's called Badras. They're still there. <laughs> it was unbelievable nostalgia. I took pictures, sent it to my family. But, you know, it's just amazing. Still there, 60 years ago of me, still there. I mean, that's, say, 50, 54 years ago. That's great. Yeah, it was It was uh, one of the first things I did. I, I got in a car and just drove around and enjoyed the city. And Jeddah is really, really beautiful. I mean, I get what you're saying. I lived mm -hmm. in Riyadh, you know, myself growing up. Then I, I lived in Hobar and then in Jeddah. Jeddah was my teenage years, let's say. And, you know, that was the place that I most feel at home. But um, the fun, I definitely the fun won't understand what you're saying about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, but tell, tell us a little bit about program management and how that attracted your interest. Because it's yeah. not a, a typical career path for engineers. Like you said early on, it's something that people don't understand, people don't know sometimes, people don't want to deal with uh, sometimes. Yes. For me, because I chose construction option, project management. My master's itself is in project management and construction techniques. So it was natural that I go into this area of the project life cycle, the execution, basically. Now, project management is basically managing the production processes. You have a drawing from a designer whether architectural or industrial, whatever it is, and you want to convert that to reality. So you have to deal with the elements. You have people, you have material, you have equipment, and you have your single most scarce resource, time. Maybe not present in everybody's mind, 
that time is the only resource that is not replenishable. You lose 20 tons of cement or steel, you can get another 20 tons. But if you lose 20, you lose 20 seconds, you cannot roll back 20 seconds. So time is the scarcity resource that you have to focus on when managing any production process. People, unfortunately, deal with time, in my experience, as if it is their own and unlimited. Time, to many people, doesn't have value. We used to look in a bad way sometimes on people who say time is money. Actually, time is money. When you have a project with a thousand labor force, with all the tools and equipments that you have bought or hired, and then because of your planning or design decisions, work is stopped. Time is running. What happens to your cost? Cost is money. Yeah. It's flying with the flying time. You have to pay salaries to these guys. You have yeah. to pay rent for this equipment. So time is money. It's not a taboo. It's not a materialistic thing. You are entrusted with people's lives and money. The investor, when he gives you a million dollar, he trusts you to convert his dream to whatever that million can buy for him. I worked on a project that was $12.5 billion. It's then my CV. It's almost 50 billion real. That project alone, if you blink, you'll probably lose a million dollars. Think about it. Yeah. There was nine plants going up together, seven international contractors, leading international contractors, and you want everything to go smooth. And you have to coordinate with different business modes, multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-professional background, multi-priority, conflicting priority. Manpower at that time went up to 35,000 people on that site. It was one mile by one mile. Oh, my gosh. Two and a quarter square kilometers. 35,000 people. Planning for the labor to come in in the morning by buses and leave in the evening without causing a disaster was a planning job. Planning and scheduling is my passion, by the way, because when I studied construction option, a key thing is to schedule a project, activities. It was my good fortune that when I started in my university uh, education, this university, North Carolina State, I'm so proud. You might, if you follow my post, always I click on things with NC State. Really, if I have a choice where to go back, to Palestine or NC State, if I cannot go back to Palestine, take me to NC State. Yeah. Now, why? In this university, it was mandatory that we take a computer programming course for engineers before they take any engineering course. Imagine that. To me, getting out of from Taif, who doesn't know what a computer is, don't know anything about it other than a computer is something fast, something miracle, no idea what it is. I was forced to take a computer course before I can schedule statics and dynamics as early courses in civil engineering. Now, I'll tell you the funny story in a minute. Getting to take that was the first step 
in changing a young mathematician mind because computers are basically tools to create mathematical models in whatever solution you want to make. And that's what led to the algorithm, the planning, as you do, even if you want to make uh, an invitation for dinner, six people, you do a plan. You have to worry about logistics. You have to worry about timing. You have to worry about material. So planning is part of our natural life every day. But this here you, you is... You have to put some contingency with the fight yes. with the wife. <laughs> <laughs> Luckily, I don't interfere in the cooking, but she's a master at timing. I, I really... Okay. Um, <laughs> I can't understand how women do it. I'm, I'm happy I'm not a chef because then uh, <laughs> nobody will have a dinner on time or a meal on time. But on, because, because they coordinate so many things intuitively. If it's to me, I have to plan it and program it. It's just not my forte. But it's really, I admire what women or chefs in general do. Yeah. I watched recently some of these contests for like MasterChef Australia or the, the local yeah. versions of it. It's amazing the planning and scheduling and production prioritization that goes in it. I look at it always from a project manager point of view. Yeah. And they do it in a few seconds in their head, yeah. right? They, they give That's them the, the menu and, and, they, and they just, you know, note down the minutes yes. there. And they, yeah. and, and they know what to do and when and uh, what to put first, what to put last and all that stuff. So going back to the question I was addressing, computer education to me was pivotal. There are three courses in my life, and I wish every youngster focuses on this. One is after the learning in high school for basic math, the implementation of the mathematical mind is in programming. Kids must learn programming. Second thing that was very pivotal in my young life was a course we took called engineering economics. In this course, we understood what is the value of the dollar today, yesterday, tomorrow and how to make financial decisions, buy or rent, when to consider, a, what types of costs you have. Is it a fixed or variable? Is it a sunk cost? It means it will never be recovered. These are concepts that have really made life meaningful to young me. The third course, without it, I wouldn't be talking comfortably with you. It's called interpersonal communication. Because we grow up in certain surroundings, we could be introverts or extroverts or living with introvert or extrovert people. So we we don't know what to do around people or around ourselves, how to express ourselves. That course was so important. I keep teaching it or pushing my kids and others, my nieces and nephews, to study it as youngsters, to understand how to talk and how to listen, more importantly, because silence also is a language. Sometimes I know I talk too much, but silence is a language. You have to know to read that language. It's funny. My father is also a civil engineer. He also studied in New York City in the 80s, so in the mid-80s. And... When you ask him what the most important subject was that he studied in engineering school, he talks about interpersonal communication. He says, that's why I fell in love with the U.S. education system. He says, that course taught me how to dress. 
how to address someone, how to look at them when they talk to me, how to shake their hand. Um, And it it changed my life. And it's so interesting to see that consistency there. 100%. And sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to ask, because you worked in the best companies in the world, from Sapic to Alarab to Parsons to Jacobs to WSP now. And you worked at a general contractor, you worked as a consultant, you worked uh, at a startup. Where was scheduling the toughest for you and which of these experiences has taught you the most important lessons there? Where, where did it really squeeze you to be as creative as you can be? And the follow-up question to that is, how were you able to get that creativity? Okay. On one hand, it's passion. On the other, readiness. I have the tools. Just like if we want to say in sports analogy, if I'm a basketball player all my life, and then my friends or my club says, Hilal, we need a man to complete the football team. We have 10 people. We need one more. You are a good athlete. Will you play? What do you think my answer will be? Of course. Give me challenges. No. (laughs) As a basketball player, what will you do when you first see a ball on the court? I'm not sure. (laughs) I'm waiting for you. Basketball, basketball, when when a ball comes to you, you will catch it. As you touch the ball, that's a foul. (laughs) You see the analogy? Yes. So the game is not psychologically entrenched in your head. So by default, you're not ready to play football. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There is a game, there are players, and there is a playing field. If you don't know all three, you will make mistake on all three. Yeah. You have to know the rules of the game. You have to know the players. You have to know the playing field. And this is readiness. In our business, scheduling, it's good that you start from the ground, on the floor, in the dirt, in the, under the sun, on site. So you see things built. You're not a dreamer. If you have seen how a carpenter or a steel fixer work in making the shuttering and then the mason bringing the concrete and the finishers and then the scaffolding setup and demolition and then move it up, the shoring, the support. If you don't know the cycle physically, if you haven't done it, You're not ready. You read about it in a book, but Mm. you don't have it inside. You didn't feel it. This is the passion and experience combination when you do planning. That's where I went to planning. To me, doing the same thing every day is not my cup of tea. If I'm on site every day erecting scaffolding, putting wood, steel, concrete, dismantle, move it, erect it, Some people are happy that way. By the way, they are not wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Some people are born for consistency. Some people are born for change. I'm from the change type. If I do something 10 times, okay, that's enough. But programming, for example, I do it 100 times. Every time is different. (laughs) You see? That's the difference. If you are a postman, 
and with all respect to all such jobs. A postman has a specific task, no more, and that's not little. He has to read the incoming mail. He has to sort it, put it in certain boxes, sit at the desk, deal with the customer when he comes in. He does that every day. There is no surprise. There is nothing major different, right? And he's happy with that. Well, that's fine with him if it makes him happy. I wouldn't be a good postman, no matter how simple the job is, because I would be restless. Yeah. But go to a chaotic place and tell me, okay, make order out of this. Then I feel I am in an amusement park. I like that. Yeah. I am not necessarily right, and they are not necessarily wrong. It's what you're born to do. I'm not Messi or Cristiano or Ronaldo. <laughs> Okay, but they can't do what I do. Yeah. With all respect. They can pay for somebody to do it, yes, but they cannot do it themselves. Just like I cannot play the ball like they do. It's nothing wrong. You're no less, and they are no more. They are just born that way. I'm born a different way. Life is too short to fuss about what you are. Find out what you are and make the best of it. You cannot make a big success. Well, make many small successes. So what? Add them up, they'll be big. You don't get what you want always. I like that. Continue. I'll answer you about the scheduling. Yes, please. Yeah. Of my experiences, when Saudi Arabia expanded their telephone network, they brought some technologies at that time, installed the first network of GSM telephony. As a consultant at that time on my own. And uh, I'm working with partners, of course, but I was leading the operation and they wanted planning and scheduling expertise. We were Primavera authorized representative at that time. And that was a big boost in my career. I understood more about the best tools of my passion. Primavera was and still the leading production planning and scheduling and management tool. And I was in projects at the time. We were chosen by Primavera to be representative. I was MIS manager at that time, and they offered it to us immediately. I jumped to the occasion. The board accepted. I signed the agreement. I took the training. I was the first authorized trainer on Primavera software in the Middle East in 1995. And it was my passion, (laughs) you know. To me, it was uh, an everyday uh, birthday gift, you know. It's just lovely to do what you love. By the way, many people said it, and I feel feel it. If you do what you love, you never have to work a day in your life, you know that. Like a musician, if he is not able to stay a day without music, he better be in the music section, not to work as a postman, for example, (laughs) you know. He better be doing what he enjoys. Life is too short to spend it on something you don't enjoy. The schedule I did with my team at that time, we were a small team. Lucent has like 50 people working on this. They got Bechtel to be the program management uh, consultant. And we trained them on Primavera and we helped them set up their network. On the old P3, Primavera, DOS, there were like 50 plus 1,000 activities on a network accessed by at least 20 people. 
and including people in Jeddah and Dammam. We were in Riyadh. Wow. Imagine that back in 1996, 97, something like that. You know, that was, uh, the later on, Ericsson had another job. We had big schedules. There were over 100,000 activity on one database and being shared. I did a project as a contractor with Al-Rajhi, Al-Arab sister uh, called the Rajhi Projects. That was the biggest construction built up area in one place in so many measures. It was the ITCC complex, information technology and telecom complex. That one had 640,000 square meters being built on a piece of land, oval shape. It was like 400 meter by 200 meter. It was so dense and we had to schedule everything as a contractor. We had to submit a detailed schedule. Mm -hmm. I devised the work breakdown structure. We had work packages on everything. Uh, Usually I make from the mathematical modeling point of view, if you are familiar with the term called data cube, the data is not two dimensional, it's multidimensional. But because it's difficult to imagine 4D, 5D, 6D, you know, the 3D alone is powerful enough. But actually, it's multidimensional when we have that properly laid out in a good database. On that project alone, the non-detailed schedule was over 50,000 activities because we had four towers and seven small buildings we had underground parking going down like 25 meters below ground, five levels. It was a huge by all measures, 180,000 square meter, just the underground parking. How do you get people to adhere to that schedule? Because making schedules That's is great. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you how. How do we get them to follow it? <laughs> First of all, you cannot order people to work, but you can convince them. The way I do scheduling, and this is important, is I invite the stakeholders, the construction manager, the logistics manager, the engineering manager, and the project manager, and I'm the planner. I tell them, what would you do? What do you prefer? Can you say something here? Do you need help? Shall we ask for somebody on a solution or a tool or something? When you put them in these planning sessions, they know, first of all, it's not a one-man job. No planning should be done as a one-man job or in silos. No, face-to-face. You go, first of all, on site layout. You have to plan where you will put your material, your equipment, where you'll start your excavation, where you'll start your entrances and exits of the site, All of this, if you do it by acceptance of the stakeholders, you don't impose a plan on the person who will execute it. You involve him, and then it becomes his plan. You are only working like a monitor. You tell him, hello, engineer, you have tomorrow to finish this or next week to do that, or you have to install something next month The material is late or on time, so you are a facilitator. As a planner, think of yourself as a facilitator. You are doing two things. On one hand, giving them 
uh, foresight, seeing ahead what they are going like a like a navigator in a way. On the other hand, you are a monitor and control. Mm-hmm. Monitor and control, and there is a problem about control, by the way. The most most misunderstood word is control. Really, because when you say control to the unexperienced or the ignorant, he thinks it is a personal thing. I swear I had a fight one day with a CEO in one company. I was chief uh, taking care of the planning. And I was trying to tell him, this is a planning and control function. He said, no, no, you are only planning. I said, sorry, uh, who's doing the control? He said, why should somebody do control? There is no control. I said, what do you mean? He said, nothing is wrong. What do you control? I said to him, no, but this is not the definition of control. He said, no, listen, no control. Control when somebody doesn't know what to do. I know what to do. It was true like this. It was a shocker to me. Simply I explained to him. I understood later, but then explained it to him. Listen, looks like you are taking a language, common practice definition of the word control. Control meanings taking over somebody's will, you know? I told him, no, I'm not taking over anybody's decision or will. All I'm doing is following the proper professional definition of monitor and control. When you monitor, what is the meaning of monitor? You're looking at something, observing it, taking measurements, just like when you're driving your car. If your speed limit is 120 and you're going 140, what happens? You get a ticket. How do you avoid the ticket? You monitor your speedometer. You know if you are over 120 or not, right? So you are monitoring. Now, if you find yourself 140, immediately you know it is not where you want to be. So what do you do? You apply brakes. You slow down. This slowdown is considered technically by proper definition of control. You're applying corrective measure. Right. When you monitor and don't see the measurements within limit or spec or desired range, you feel immediately that a corrective action should be taken. Otherwise, I will be in violation. So control is actually taking corrective action. It has nothing to do about tripping somebody his freedom. He was taking a literal, uneducated definition. And, you know, what I like about this is that it's coming from a man that has seen pretty much as much as there is to see up to now in construction. And you study a lot, you know, you read a lot of books, you read a lot about your subject, about your passion. You're very passionate about what you do, um, yet you still talk about openness and acceptance. And... It's something that we all often fall in the trap of to express our opinion and to try to, well, to, we sometimes might think that we know better than the other person because we've seen, we've seen things that yet you're standing here and you're saying, accept the other person's opinion. They are the ones that are, that are going to be building this, listen to them and facilitate this and try to get the best out of them and bring all this together. So I think this is a very, very important lesson. And I want to go to change and I want to ask you a question that we love asking everyone who participates on the, on the podcast. You said you, you like change and we see 
We, we've experienced that with you through this podcast. We'd like to ask you, how would you like to see construction change in 10 years from now? What would you like to be different 10 years from now for the construction industry? Thank you. Sorry, go ahead. Add to the question of Angelos, uh, it's a bit of rephrasing also on something very touching that you mentioned earlier, that you're focused on leaving a better construction and a better world for the younger generations so that they can take care of you in the future. And we would love to know, as a follow-up to Angelos' question, what is the construction industry that you want to leave behind for the younger generation to take over? One of my biggest battles since I started was a generational readiness. I came as a young man with good education, armed by advanced computer techniques, to an environment where the decision makers have no idea, no appreciation what computers can do for them. They don't understand the value of training their people. For example, there's a famous story, maybe you heard it, the educated, open-minded CEO of a company was talking to his CFO. I want to put a budget to train our engineers or staff. So he was thinking in some big numbers, say a million dollar to a million dollar. You know, the CFO looks at the finances, looks from a point of view of cost. So he was telling him, But sir, these people are transient. They move around. What happens if we train them and leave? We spend money and they leave. You know what the CEO said to him, if you haven't heard the story? He said, that's the least of my concern. I am afraid if I don't train them and they stay. That's the disaster. So educating your workforce to deal with the advent of computer and other technology, use it, is an investment, not a cost. It's an investment in better operational efficiency. For example, until today, you hear a lot about BIM, B-I-M, you know, right. the building information. It was modeling, now building information management. Right. Have you heard of the drawings, the technology, when started with AutoCAD, it was 2D, two-dimensional. Then it became 3D, like you have Revit or Bentley or 3D. Now, have you heard of 4D, 5D, 6D? Have you heard of this? You may yeah. have. You are in the industry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is by merging technologies, right? 4D is mixing the graphics with the schedule. Yeah. 5D with the cost. 6D becomes with the procurement and supply chain. If you integrate, you save a lot of error, forgetness, omission, redundancy. In terms of transparency, nobody can tell you we bought 20 tons of steel, but we don't know where we have located it. Maybe somebody stole it off the site. A truckload of steel, usually 20 to 30 tons. A lot of these things disappear if you utilize the tools that are available to you. What to do with technology in 10 years? Well, first of all, invest in educating your current staff and hiring a new staff with computer skills. I'm suffering 
throughout my career with colleagues, peers, or managers who are computer illiterate. I'm not saying they cannot answer an email. They can do much more than that. You send them an Excel sheet, they get lost. They don't invest in themselves. That's their fault. I hope they can invest in improving themselves. But you can't push people to do what they don't feel they like. Some people are so fixed. And I'm not talking about people who are educated in the East or the West or anywhere else. It's just a human trait. One barrier to efficiency is understanding the role of money and cost in our everyday decisions. You know if you're a contractor, you have a project for, say, $500 million. Say you have 10% projected profit. So out of $500 million, your company in three years maybe, if it's a three-year project, will gain $50 million. This is the ceiling of your profit. The role of a good project manager is not to spend unnecessarily. If the budget is 450, maybe any saving I do will add to the 50 million as a profit. Now, what happens is worse than that. There are lean construction techniques. You heard about lean construction. Lean construction basically talks about two things, reducing waste, increasing value. Reducing waste of what? The material, the supply chain, the timing and the quantity, and waste of time. When time runs and you are idle, you're paying. There's another one, rework. When you budget for a project, you say, I need 60 tons of steel. But if something fails, you need to replace 10 more tons. There was no budget for this. It will eat up from your 50 million as a profit. Add to other negative influences. Your 50 million suddenly can become five at best, if not zero. This is where the role of management, that's why I started saying we engineers should learn management of people, management of supply chain, management of finances. If we don't do that, we're just going to be gambling with somebody's money. A difference between project management and gambling, both deal with the unknown, but in project management, you have a leverage. If you guys watched a movie called Apollo 13, have you seen that? Yeah, yeah, recently. Recently, Apollo 13. There was a character who was denied the flight two days before flight. Gary Ganesi was the actor. Yeah. The real-life person, Admiral Ken Mattingly, came and gave us a presentation, a keynote speech at one Primavera annual conference in Dallas, 98 Hmm. or something. This after the movie came out. He was the person on which the movie was circling around that he was denied flight, but he was able to help his colleagues who were trapped in space. He told us project management is a gambling with a twist. You have leverage. That's true. (laughs) In gambling, you have no control over the game. It's just game of chance. But project management should not be a gambling game. And that's where people lose. No gambler wins. Yeah. Even when they cheat, they end up losing anyway. <laughs> right. Life should not be a gamble. 
Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We really do hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if you think that it delivered value to you, please share it with a friend who will appreciate it as well. Thanks.